Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This American Life, Slate.com, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Radio Lab, NPR, and The Young Turks. not the most important speech Barack Obama gave in November. Didn't get much press coverage. In fact, it wasn't even important enough for Barack Obama to show up in person to deliver. He pre-taped a video. But for the people who saw this speech, it was a big, big deal. This was at the opening session of an international conference on global warming that had been convened in Los Angeles by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mary Nichols is in charge of creating California's climate change policies and is close to some people in the Obama camp. So she was one of the few people attending who knew that the video was on the program. Barack Obama had just been elected two weeks before. A lot of us were still kind of uh, absorbing the reality that we actually were going to have a new president. And I really wasn't expecting much more than a welcome and congratulations and I'm so glad you're doing this kind of message. I really wasn't expecting anything of substance. So we're in this gigantic ballroom, and, you know, there's hundreds of people from all over the world. From, I believe, over 50 uh, states, provinces, and countries. This is Anthony Eggert, a senior policy advisor for the California Air Resources Board. Governor Schwarzenegger um, basically introduced the conference, welcomed the delegates. I want to welcome you all to the uh, Governor's Global Climate Summit. And then uh, said we have a, you know, a welcome message uh, from our president-elect. A video from our president-elect. Barack Obama, just to show to you, just to show to you. And um, then the video comes up, you know, there's Barack Obama just facing the camera and starting to talk. When I heard him come on, it was really shocking. Lucia Green-Weisskull works promoting low-carbon policies in China, and she attended the conference with the Chinese delegation. Because I had been listening really carefully throughout the entire um, campaign about his position on climate change, and frankly, hadn't heard a whole lot of very specific commitments. Yeah, it was a bit frustrating. And he didn't spend a lot of time on it from my perspective. I mean, I I wanted him to sort of say this is the most important thing, and he didn't say that. Um, But then all of a sudden he seemed to be saying that. Few challenges facing America and the world are more urgent than combating climate change. The science is beyond dispute. And the facts are clear. Did you have any reaction when he said, the science is beyond dispute? I thought, you know, some people in the Bush White House might be like, hey, wait a minute. That's not what we were saying, you know. In fact, everything about the way this speech was heard had to do with the last eight years and President Bush. President Bush, of course, did not acknowledge that human beings had anything to do with global warming until 2005, his second term. And even then, he didn't do much to fix the problem. In fact, his administration tried to block others from taking action. When California policymakers like Mary Nichols created regulations to curb greenhouse gases in their own state, the Bush administration went out of its way to strike down those state laws. And all of this informed how everybody in this room heard this speech. I I think there was a huge amount of pent-up frustration and anger, and now it was actually okay to say it really is over. And once I take office, you can be sure that the United States will once again engage vigorously and help lead the world toward a new era of global cooperation on climate change. Now's the time to confront this challenge once and for all. 
part of what's uh, striking about this video is he is he's very emphatic. He says, now is the time to confront this. He says, delay is no longer an option. Denial is no longer an option. When he was saying those things, what did you feel? Well, it was, uh, it was amazement because um, I never thought that I would hear someone who was the elected president of the United States saying those those words. It was pretty emotional and pretty stunning in a lot of ways, and it felt especially you know, in the context of being among this Chinese delegation, I felt, wow, we elected this guy, and I'm proud. If I remember correctly, I may have actually done a fist pump. You did a fist pump to a video, a pre-taped video? I, I, I have to admit that I did, yes. You know, again, this was really, uh, it was a watershed moment in, in my career. As a professional, I never felt that way because, you know, I've only been working as an environmentalist under Bush. There were people crying. I had tears in my eyes, too. I can't deny it. Really? I have to tell you, like, you're, you're a former federal official. I mean, you're, you're a hard-boiled <laughs> government. Yeah, well, it, I don't know how hard-boiled, but yeah. it's true. We don't, we don't do a lot of crying in public, <laughs> but this was a very emotional moment. There's no question about it. It was just a, it was just a ray of hope. We, we clapped, and then you have to stop really fast because it's a video, and he keeps talking, and then you also want to hear what he's going to say. So it was kind of awkward applause. No very uh, enthusiastic, but then very short. Barack Obama even laid out in more detail than they'd ever heard specific targets for reducing greenhouse gases. And he concluded with just kind of a simple thanks. Thank you. And there was a pause, and then you know everybody just kind of stood up and, and gave the standing ovation, which you know again is also um, uh, I guess intriguing because this is a video address. Uh, right, he's on he's on videotape. Like he doesn't know that you're standing up and clapping. Exactly, exactly. But I think it was just everybody was just so enthusiastic they couldn't help themselves. All of a sudden, the world seemed like a place where people, you know, where countries could come together and be productive again. In general, people who are drawn to working in the environment are not. Um, usually optimistic. They, they're used to, you know, hmm. thinking about all the, the bad things that are going to happen and fighting for every bit of ground. So this is one of those rare opportunities to hear somebody who has the, the youth and the uh, eloquence of Obama taking on this issue so clearly and strongly was um, just overwhelming.
Today's story is called Mission Accomplished. The war on science is over. Now what? And it's written by Chris Mooney. The war on science is over. Or at least it is in the sense that I originally meant the phrase. We're at the close of the Bush administration's years of attacks on the integrity of scientific information. It's biased editing of technical documents, muzzling of government researchers, and shameless dispersal of faulty ideas about issues like global warming. The attacks generated dramatic outrage and considerable activism from the traditionally staid science community and the sympathy of politicians like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. So it's no great surprise to find the president-elect setting out to restore dignity to the role of science in government. George W. Bush didn't even bother to name his White House science advisor until well into his first term, and his appointee, physicist John Marburger, didn't win Senate confirmation until October 2001. In contrast, Obama has already named Nobel laureate physicist Stephen Chu to head the Energy Department and a climate specialist and prominent leader of the scientific community, Harvard's John Holdren, as his cabinet-level science advisor. Scientists are ecstatic about these developments and about Obama's recent promise to listen to them even when it's inconvenient, especially when it's inconvenient. But it would be the gravest of errors for researchers to simply return victorious to their labs and fall back on a time-honored stance of political detachment. If the war on science is over, we're now entering the post-war phase of Reconstruction, the scientific equivalent of nation-building. The Bush science controversies were just one manifestation of a deeper and long-standing gulf between the science community and the broader American public, one with roots stretching back to our indigenous tradition of anti-intellectualism and Yankee distrust of expertise and authority. So this is certainly no time for complacency. Scientists, with the support of the administration, should now be setting out to win over the hearts and minds of the American public, creating a stronger edifice of trust and understanding to help ensure that conflict doesn't come raging back again. Consider, while scientists may be resurgent in Washington, their world as a whole remains distant and bizarre to most Americans. Only 18% of us know a scientist personally, according to a 2005 survey. And when asked in 2007 to name scientific role models, the results were dismal. 44% of Americans couldn't come up with a name at all. And among those few who did, their top answers were either not scientists or not alive. Bill Gates, Al Gore, Albert Einstein. This bad news comes at a time when we need an appreciation of science, an understanding of its fundamental role in sound policymaking and the future of the economy, more than ever, to help solve our intertwined climate and energy problems, to bolster our long-term technological competitiveness, and to prepare a society for the coming controversies that research in fields like genetics and neuroscience stands ready to unleash. Instead, the communication gap between scientists and ordinary Americans has brought about or helped to perpetuate a number of homegrown anti-science pathologies. A seemingly immovable core of Americans don't believe in evolution and think the Earth is less than 10,000 years old, nearly half of us according to polling data. Americans are also more likely to reject the Big Bang Theory than are people from other countries. 
Indeed, the public has become polarized about the nature of reality itself. College-educated Democrats are now more than twice as likely as college-educated Republicans to believe that global warming is real and human-caused. To help heal such disconnects, the president-elect, as communicator-in-chief, will surely be saying as much about science as he can. But, as we all know, he has a few other minor matters to worry about. Scientists and those who care about science, journalists, policy analysts, and concerned citizens, must do the rest. The problems they face are difficult and deeply rooted, but not necessarily unfixable. Fortunately, most Americans aren't actively anti-science. The problem, rather, is that the science world is either alien to them or something they rarely think about. Most people derive their image of scientists from popular culture, nerdy, socially awkward, and often responsible for nearly destroying the world. To succeed in the post-war landscape, science communicators must find better ways of talking to people on their own terms and making research meaningful in their lives. There will be hurdles along the way. Americans are repeatedly being told that science represents an assault on their core beliefs and values. Battles over the relationship between science and religion are newly resurgent, driven in part by the new atheism of Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and others, and in part by culture warriors on the other side of the aisle who continue to see evolution as a stalking horse for irreligion. If science is ordinarily distant from the lives of ordinary Americans, unending science-religion conflicts can make it seem hostile. Another hurdle involves not the message, but the medium. Newspaper science sections have shrunken or vanished across the nation. On television, real science news has long been struggling, and CNN has let go of its entire science and technology unit. The science blogosphere is, of course, booming, but as media scholars like Matthew Nisbet of American University have observed, the blogs are unlikely to reach very many citizens who aren't already science lovers. And what would be the effect if the blogs did get to a wider audience? The semifinalists in the recent Best Science Blog of 2008 contest were a site that questions the reality of global warming and P.Z. Myers Ferengula, ground zero for a potent mix of pro-evolution advocacy and uncompromising criticism of religion. And so we find ourselves in a paradoxical situation. Science is more important than ever something our new president fully recognizes. Yet for most Americans, science is probably becoming more distant, not less. It's harder to locate and identify, and it's often more aggressive toward their core beliefs. In this context, scientists certainly shouldn't retreat to their labs. Rather, they should reach out to the public like never before. There's a lot of work to do. It's hard to believe, but after almost 10 years, 
including, if you will, the 2000 presidential campaign. After next week, we will not have George W. Bush to make fun of anymore. Well, well, not if he ignores our constant pleas to run for something again. So we thought we'd thank him by asking our limericist, Philip Godica, to compose three odes in his honor. Your job, finish two out of three of these Bush-centric limericks and win our prize. Ready to play? I guess I am. All right. Here is your first busherick. Uh, of all possible, why would you pick James? So with monikers, I've played some quick games. That old Russian is cute. I'll call him Pooty Poot. I'm a fast-handed giving out nickname. Exactly right. People sometimes wondered how Mr. Bush managed to charm his way from failed oil man to failed president. This is how. He gave people nicknames. He called foreign leaders names like Dino, Pooty Poot, Landslide, and Man of Steel. His own staff was referred to as Boy Genius, Big O, Danny Boy, Tangent Man, Tiny Lightbulb, and of course, Brownie. The press corps was composed of Stretch, Little Stretch, Super Stretch, and the Cobra. His own vice president, depending on the mood, he was either Darth Vader, Big Time, or Quasimodo. <laughs> Maybe you, like us, are jealous you never got a nickname, but don't be. Bush has a nickname for the American people as a whole, Ungrateful Swine. <laughs> All right, here is your next Bush-related limerick. It was hard to keep leading a nation with under misreinformation. So for more than two years, I was not even here. That's the time I spent on vacation. Exactly right. According to CBS radio journalist Mark Noller, President Bush did, in fact, set one presidential record most days on vacation. He has spent one of every three days of his presidency either en route to or at one of his vacation spots, most often his ranch in Crawford, Texas. Over the course of eight years, that amounts to more than two solid years of brush clearing and mountain biking. White House officials are quick to say, of course, that as he travels with his principal staff and lots of high-tech communications equipment, he was never really, quote, on vacation. He was fully able to continue screwing things up wherever he was. <laughs> Maybe he was just, you know, out to lunch. Well, yeah. yes, but he was also not in the building. I thought he was working the whole time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, here is your last limerick about Mr. Bush. It's my country whose language I'm tweaking. Through the cracks of my words, meanings leaking. When you misunderestimate, you might appreciate how low the bar is set when I'm bacon. Right! <laughs> from the very beginning, perhaps from the cradle, George W. Bush has been to the English language what the iceberg was to the Titanic. <laughs> He'll be forever remembered for such Bushisms as they're called as, quote, I know how hard it is to put food on your family. <laughs> One of the great things about books is sometimes there are some fantastic pictures. <laughs> on a related subject, he said, quote, you teach a child to read and he or her will be able to pass a literacy test. <laughs> and this is the great thing. He actually finished the way he began. He was consistent throughout at this week's final press conference he said he was talking about a successor and he said quote I'm telling you there's an enemy that would like to attack America Americans again there just is that's the reality of the world and I wish him all the very best <laughs> unquote so
Uh, I wanted to, to read to you, Mr. Kroll, uh, the second paragraph of a, a, uh, an article that was recently in the New York Times. Have you heard about this uh, this fellow Barack Obama? I know Obama? about the New York Times. What? Oh, for go. Yes, I yes. heard him too. Okay. Well, new researchers have documented. I'm quoting here, what they call an Obama effect, really? showing that a performance gap between African Americans and whites on a 20-question test administered before Mr. Obama's nomination, all but disappeared when the exam was administered after his acceptance speech and again after the presidential election. So, so, so to back up, that means. And translate it into normal English. Yes, right? go ahead. That um, some researchers decided to give a 20-question test to a bunch of people. They were young people and older people, too. Just You're going to take a test. It's a GRE test. It's a verbal test that you take to go to graduate school. But before they take the test, they have to list their race. Yes, they do. So you put down your race, and then you take the test. Now, the first time they administered the test was sometime last year, before Barack Obama was a big deal. Yes. And blacks performed poorer, poorer than whites. Yes. Eight, poorly. Yeah. So whites, on average at that point, answered 12 cor- uh, questions out of 20 correct, and black uh, subjects answered only 8.5 on average out of 20. So that's a significant difference, although it was a small sample. Then they gave the exact same 20-question test, again, GREs, again, the verbal, to a group of people after Barack Obama had become the nominee of the Democratic Party, had given an acceptance speech in in uh, Denver, Colorado, and yep. was a pretty famous and important guy. Yes. And then they gave it yet again after Barack Obama had been elected president of the United States. So there's, there's these multiple test takings, and what they noticed was after Barack Obama had become fabulous, <laughs> blacks taking the test scored about the same as whites. Before Barack Obama had been fabulous, blacks performed more poorly, and there's a there's a long-standing reason for the previous performance, but the new performance that's very interesting. Pretty stunning, but I mean, we should say, but as uh, by way of caveats, that this is a really preliminary study. It's not, not been peer-reviewed. Not the been other peer-reviewed. guys haven't looked it over. He, not a huge number of uh, subjects in the study, but nevertheless, very intriguing. Yes, and there is actually precedent for this uh, for this. Um, way of thinking. The precedence goes back to uh, a psychology professor named Claude Steele. I got a job offer, this is in the 80s, at the University of Michigan, and it was part psychology and part to administer a minority student program there. And um, in the process, I, I saw data that surprised me. What he saw was a troubling trend. Two kids would enter Michigan. One was black, one was white. They'd come in at the exact same levels. Same skills, same SAT score. So theoretically, they should do the same when they get to Michigan. But without fail, or almost without fail, after one semester... The black kid was winding up with lower grades. How much lower? Pretty, pretty, um, pretty dramatic. At least two-thirds of the letter grades. Meaning if the white kid got an A, the black kid, who should be getting an A2, is instead getting a B. That's right. Or a B+. Plus. That's significant. That's significant. That's significant. And he also, by the way, saw this performance gap between women and men when it came to math. To the same degree? The same degree. In advanced math courses, it was comparable. I learned this is a national phenomenon. Uh, if, if I was to walk into almost any college class in the United States, uh, I'd have a very high probability of finding exactly that. What could explain these differences? There was something there that people didn't understand and that we certainly didn't understand. So he figured he would start with the woman in math issue. He brought a bunch of women in and a bunch of men, 
sophomores. Brought them into the laboratory one at a time, gave them a half an hour section of the graduate record exam you take if you're a math major. Very, very difficult math. Mm. And sure enough, the women who had all the same credentials coming into that situation performed dramatically worse than the men. Worse as in? It'd be a couple hundred points on an SAT test. Big difference. So this was a big effect. So Claude Steele thought, all right, Step one complete. I've got a lab situation that resembles the real world. Good. Now the next step is to tweak things a little bit, see if I can mess around with it. Now, normally in these situations... The test giver's got a white lab coat on, and he brings in a big stack of cellophane-wrapped tests, and he puts a clock on the table. It's all, it's all, you know, it's like... That's, that's going to intimidate almost anybody. Maybe that's what's happening, he thought. What if I took away the clock, took away the coat, and most importantly, right before the test, I had the test giver, instead of saying the normal, I'm going to give you a test, pre-test thing, maybe instead say something like this. Look, you may have heard that uh, women don't do as well as men on difficult standardized math tests. You may have heard that, but that is not true for this particular test. This particular test does not show gender differences, never has, never will. He wondered if maybe saying that simple sentence before giving the test would have an effect. And sure enough, I wouldn't be here if their performance didn't go up and go up to match that of the equally skilled men. That performance gap totally vanished. She, look at this thing. So we raced and did it very quickly, the same kind of an experiment with African-Americans. There, the pre-test disclaimer went like this. This is an instrument that we use to study problem solving, and it is not diagnostic of individuals' intellectual ability. In other words, this is not a test of your intelligence. I repeat, not an IQ test. So just do the best you can. And with that simple disclaimer at the start? Same kind of an effect. The black students and the white students were now equal. Just recently, uh, Ryan Brown and Eric Day did an even cleverer treatment. They, there is a, an IQ test, which is nonverbal. It's called the Advanced Progressive Matrices. It has figures. Very abstract. they got lines crossing. That you have check, to match and so checks, on. Checks. Uh, it's essentially pattern matching. Diamonds with it's dots in totally them. Totally visual. Yeah. And so they could represent very, that test as, as it is, as an IQ test. It's, in fact, seen as the gold standard of IQ tests because it's, quote, culture-free. There's no math. There's no reading. Because it doesn't involve language. Uh, or you could represent the exact same test as a puzzle. 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 Meaning you can give an IQ test to a bunch of kids and the blacks will perform worse. But if you give that same test, lose the word test, lose the word IQ, and just call it a puzzle, the black participants suddenly jump up in their performance. Basically, we got a reversal. When you represent it as a puzzle, blacks perform as well as white. They, they did, yeah. That's all it takes. Just change a few words. In fact, there's even better research on this uh, by a guy named Jeff Stone at University of Arizona who's shown this with golfing tasks where he's had black and white golfers just putt. Wait, so this, putting? This can ev- We're yes, talking about even putting? With, well, think about, think about what it takes to putt 
Effectively, are you a golfer? No. Ryan's not either, so he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's right, about. so I'm going to make this up. <laughs> you have to concentrate. What we did was we got a miniature golf situation where each hole changed and people had to work around obstacles. This is Jeff Stone. He runs the Social Psychology of Sports Lab at the University of Arizona. And here's what he did. He tested his black and white putters in two scenarios. Scenario one, using the word intelligence. Uh, when we told him it was a measure of sports intelligence, black uh, participants did about four strokes worse than white participants. But when he changed it, took out the word intelligence and framed it instead as a test of your natural athletic ability. There, the results totally flipped. flipped. And we had now whites performing significantly worse than blacks by about four strokes. If you look at the, the recent uh, U.S. Open that was played in San Diego, Tiger Woods and Rocco Mediate went four days, 18 holes. They went to an 18-hole playoff on Monday. still tied. Sudden death we go. And uh, Tiger finally won it on the first playoff hole. Tiger Woods wins a third U.S. Open championship. By one stroke. So when you talk about four strokes, that's a huge difference. All right, so here's my question. Stereotypes are powerful. Okay, that makes sense. Now, but in terms of understanding how this works, can you make this tactile for me? Like if the stereotype that's having all these effects is like a thing, like a mm-hmm. like a little gremlin that bites. Like when in the test taking process does it actually like do its damage? That, that's gonna it that's gonna be way open to debate. I what w- does seem to be clear from the data, according to Eric Day and Ryan Brown and Claude Steele, is that the gremlin only seems to appear when the test is sufficiently hard. If the test is easy, it's important to point out, uh, these effects don't happen. It's not that the gremlin is not there. Well, he walks in with you, but he doesn't speak necessarily until things get challenging. As soon as the test gets difficult. That's where the voices kick in. Which means that for most of the tests, everybody's doing about the same. It's only at problem number 17, the one about cosines and factorials and whatever, where things start to go wrong, and at least that's the theory. At that problem, the black student starts to stiffen up a little bit. That's right. And Claude Steele's measured this. Their blood pressure is elevated, their short-term memory is impaired. It's that flicker of frustration through their body that wakes up the gremlin who starts to whisper in their ear. I don't know if you can do this. Oh, shit. Is what they say about us true? They don't think you can do it. All the usual stuff. And even if the student doesn't believe it, which is likely... See, you don't have to believe it. That's the kind of insidious thing here. Just the fact that he has now this extra bit of mental chatter. That little guy whispering... Well, it's a distraction. And that makes their performance go down. Just a little bit. All of this dialogue is keeping you from being 100% focused on the task at hand, which is solving these problems. So the real subtle power of a stereotype isn't that it prevents you from doing the thing you want to do. It distracts you for just a beat from doing the thing you want to do, and that may be all the difference. seem to anticipate Inauguration Day with a mix of curiosity and suspicion. Only 33% of the voters in that state voted. 
for Barack Obama. No state voted less Democratic. But many people in Wyoming say they will still give the new president the respect any president of the United States deserves. Wyoming Public Radio's Addie Goss reports. Gentlemen, can I help you? Just days before the inauguration, the cash register is ringing at this gun shop in Laramie. Owner Dieter Sturm says sales are up 50 to 100 percent. People worry, he says, that Obama will ban certain semi-automatic weapons. Those are going especially fast. He's been one of the best gun salesmen. Actually, he's been better than uh, the Clintons were, and they were damn good. Sturm didn't vote for Obama. He questions the president-elect's patriotism and his stance on Iraq. But for now, Sturm says the threat of a Democratic president is good for business. The picture is less cheery 50 miles down the road in Cheyenne, where the Wyoming legislature began work this week. Lawmakers here mingle in suits, boots, and bolo ties. Many, like Republican Senator Kurt Meyer, are anxious about Obama. We know that we are going to get change. We just don't know what the change is going to be. And I think that brings both a uh, sense of excitement and both a sense of fear because the man is very capable in some areas, but I think that he's awfully green in the gills. Many lawmakers agree Wyoming has a lot at stake. The state's mineral royalties have already taken a hit with the economic downturn. Meyer says Obama's push for alternative energy could be even more painful. But other Wyoming residents are eager for change, especially in Laramie, home of the University of Wyoming. At a coffee shop downtown, many people's eyes light up when they talk about Barack Obama. I feel very optimistic. That's university employee Michael Yake. I think he's got some really good environmental policies. Hopefully that'll hold up. And that won't, He won't get a lot of opposition from the Republicans in this state who want to drill and drill and keep on drilling. Others are worried about Obama's stance on the environment. Across the interstate in West Laramie, four ranchers sit around a table at McDonald's. One of them is Tom Page, a dark-haired man with a silk handkerchief knotted around his neck. My wife had the comment. She said that... Obama is going to be like Clinton on steroids. And the, the farming and ranching industry had a lot of trouble with Clinton. Page says his first concern is about endangered species protections. To liberals in Washington, he says endangered species are an abstract feel-good issue. But he says to Wyoming ranchers, some of those species, like gray wolves, are a real threat to their cattle and to their livelihoods. You know, if we would turn that wolf loose in Central Park or down there around the Lincoln Monument in Washington, D.C., they'd be screaming bloody murder about it real suddenly. Across the table, rancher Scott Sims says he worries the Obama administration will raise the estate tax. He says that could make it tough or impossible for ranchers to pass their land down to their children. We don't need more government. We need less government. We don't need more taxes. We don't need the redistribution of wealth. The other men nod in agreement. University of Wyoming history professor Pete Simpson has seen the tides of Democratic and Republican administrations come and go. He says there's a mix of emotions in Wyoming when it's the Democrats' turn. Some anxiety, uh, some hopefulness, some historical ennui. We're not too great on change in this state. Regardless, change is coming on January 20th, and many here say come Tuesday they'll stand behind their new president. That's just the Wyoming way. Voices, voices.
Of course, are about the Barackalypse, the inauguration of the new president. Here's your next quote. It's not a constitutional crisis. Uh, this is the Chief Justice's version of a wardrobe malfunction. That was law professor Jonathan Turley of George Washington University. He was talking to the San Francisco Chronicle about something that got screwed up on the big day. What? Oh, what's it called? The oath. The oath of the office, in fact. <laughs> Unlike every other justice who administered the oath of office by reading it from a piece of paper, <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts insisted on going commando. <laughs> and just like the classic case of the little kid who's just got one line in the big school play, he screwed it up. <laughs> Worse, Obama followed along, so he didn't say it right either. In fact, this was the biggest inaugural gaffe since that prankster, Salmon P. Chase, made Ulysses S. Grant say, I, U.S. Grant, am a duty head. <laughs> anyway, the next day, citing a quote, abundance of caution, the Chief Justice was brought back to the White House to do it all over again, this time to make sure the Chief Justice got it right the president wrote the text of the oath on his own forehead. <laughs> and Justice Roberts, that, that klutz, he said, I, Barack Hussein, eyebrow, eyebrow, Obama. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I think the, the world collectively held their breath when they were muffing that up on the, on the platform. And it did look like one of those moments where you could get the giggles, you know, if you were there. <laughs> You know, it's like you see wedding vows where somebody screws up their vow and suddenly the groom snickers and the bride snickers. Pretty yeah. soon the whole wedding party is in stitches and, and, and nobody can, can pull it together. Wouldn't have that been cool if that would have happened? They're breaking up. You know, Wolf Blitzer giving the play by play. Justice Stevens seems to have soiled himself. <laughs> It's just, you know, you'd never, it's a rare opportunity to see a, a member of the Supreme Court become Bill Buckner. You know, yeah, like fantastic. that's really great. Yeah. The oath went between his legs. Well, well and after, after hearing you know, our, our language mangled for eight solid years, it isn't something you're going to recover from overnight. That's I mean, true. in a way, it was kind of comforting. You know? All right, very good, Holly Joe. Here is your last quote about Anagopalooza. Right. I, uh, I can't feel my butt. That was a young woman named <laughs> Jarita Moore, one of millions of people who did what despite the cold? Stood outside. Yeah, and saw the inauguration. You want to know what change looks like? Well, for more than two million very cold people, 
change looked like a white building way, way far away with a tiny little dot speaking in the middle. Okay, one more important detail. The little dot was not, for the first time ever, pink. <laughs> Most people who braved the crowds in the cold were happy anyway. There were some exceptions. Some people couldn't get in even though they had tickets. Others got stuck for hours in security lines. And one audience member was unhappy with the mean things President Obama said about the Bush administration, but that guy was really cheered up by the free helicopter ride that came with his ticket. <laughs> Now we move on to uh, some Republicans who are sad to see George Bush go. Uh, these are congressmen. Uh, what we're going to see in this tape is Trent Franks of Arizona, Mike Pence of Indiana, and Steve King of Iowa. And some of their tributes on the House floor to George W. Bush are wonderfully comical. Let's watch. Now, Mr. Speaker, since it is January 22nd, and since we have made a great transition in this country, I feel like it's also appropriate for me tonight to say some words in tribute to one George Walker Bush. Mm. Throughout his war on terrorism and our war on terrorism, President Bush often had to walk like a knowing lion, like a knowing lion, Mr. Speaker, through the chatter of hyenas and endure the incessant insults and thoughtless criticisms of those whose vision only reached to the selfish partisan advance of the moment. But if those critics do not devour themselves in the meantime, Mr. Speaker, someday they may face the bared teeth of an enemy that will make us all wish the lion still walked among us. Powerful. I stand here today not as a vacuous apologist for President George W. Bush. Disagree. But I come here today, uh, among other cherished colleagues, like the gentleman from Iowa, uh, simply to, to say that uh, I, I truly believe that this nation owes a debt of gratitude to George W. Bush. I am. Um... I'm here to say thank you to President Bush for the things that he has done when he's had his steady hand on the Tilla leadership, and, and especially with our national defense. Mr. Speaker, if, if I could just talk to him face to face, I think I would just say something like this. I would say thank you, Mr. President, for protecting my two little babies, Aww. Joshie and Gracie. They're so cute. Thank you that they will live in a brighter, more hopeful future because you Full of torture. were once president of the United States. And, invaded and the George wrong W. Bush showed the courage of his convictions in defending this country 
And he also showed through his fealty to his wife, through his integrity in office, the administration of what it is to provide good and decent government and to be an example to the American people and to our families and our children. For that, we owe him a debt, and I'm pleased to rise today to pay some small amount toward that. So I want to say in conclusion, Mr. Speaker, I want the message to be echoed to President Bush. Thank you for, for the people in Iraq and Afghanistan that they can go to the polls and vote and breathe free air and direct their national destiny and become our allies in this quest for freedom, the right of every man and every woman and every person to be free, the right to life that every man and every person has. And I ask, Mr. Speaker, uh, that uh, the President also be thanked for his stance for life and freedom. Uh, today has been sort of a, a remembrance of heroes. Uh, we've talked a lot about George Bush. We've talked a lot about Abraham Lincoln. In a sense, it's so appropriate to do that on uh, January 22nd, isn't it? Yeah, not really sure about that. <laughs> uh, Lincoln and Bush in the same sentence. Look, it, I get where they're coming from. Uh, they, I think they, these guys look goofy enough, especially Trent Franks from Arizona, who said the goofiest stuff in there, uh, that they are genuine in their love of George Bush, and they really believe that he kept us safe. Um, they seem to have, you know, really internalized that talking point. So on the one hand, I get it. Okay, so that's their point of view. No problem. On the other hand, the over-the-top over nature of these uh, debts of gratitude are sickening in a, in a lot of ways. One, uh, I got particularly bothered when... <laughs> You know, one of the congressmen there, Steve King from Iowa, thanked uh, President Bush, you know, in place of the Iraqi and Afghani people. Like, oh, they owe you such a debt of gratitude. It doesn't appear that they're thanking you. It appears they're throwing shoes at you. But let me thank you in their place for having bombed them to oblivion. They seem to have really appreciated that. The hundreds of thousands of civilians that are killed, that were killed, God, they owe you a debt of gratitude. You really set them free. I mean, you set them free in a way, I suppose. They're not here anymore. Uh, and then uh, I was also annoyed by Mike Pence's, you set an example for the American people. How? By committing torture, invading the wrong country, et cetera. No, by fealty to your wife. Yeah, you might have screwed up the country, and we might be in an economic disaster, and we might have tortured people to death, including an uh, innocent taxi driver in the Bagram Air Base. But you know what? At least you were loyal to your wife. Okay, mission accomplished. What a wonderful example to set for the American people. And then finally, Trent Franks. He was lying. I agree, he was lying. He was lying about WMD. He was lying about warrantless wiretapping. Oh, please. A lion in the woods. Was it in the woods? Was it in the jungle? Where was the lion? And you're going to want that lion back. I don't think so. <laughs> and Bush is a lion. Please. But I am amused at their, the fervor with which they love George W. Bush. God bless their misplaced hearts. <laughs> Not really, but okay, they gave it a shot.
Mr. Bush entered the White House eight years ago, his party controlled the House and the Senate. Now the Republicans have lost them both, not to mention the White House. NPR's Mara Liason reports on President Bush's political legacy. When George W. Bush was asked by ABC's Charlie Gibson what happened in the 2008 elections, he didn't mince words. I think it was a repudiation of Republicans. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure some people voted for Barack Obama because of me. And that is a remarkable reversal from the president's decisive re-election victory in 2004 and his hopes for a lasting Republican majority. It's almost frightening at how quick the political landscape has turned. Dan Schnur is a longtime Republican strategist who directs the Jesse Unruh Institute for Politics at the University of Southern California. Four years ago, there were books being written by very smart people from all political ideologies about an enduring Republican political majority. Today, Republicans must contemplate some sobering political facts. On electoral geography, where they just lost Republican strongholds like Virginia, Indiana, and North Carolina, and on electoral demography, where Democrats beat them two to one among Hispanics, the fastest growing voting group in America, and young voters who are forming what could be lifelong political preferences. Even Karl Rove, the architect of the Bush political strategy, admits his Republican majority was short-lived. Well, not very durable in the short run, but let's see what happens. Rove looks back on three key factors in 2008. We had an unpopular war. We had an erratic and lackluster campaign on the part of the Republicans. And we had then the worst financial crisis in at least 50 years, if not more. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich, who engineered the great Republican victories in Congress in 1994, puts the blame elsewhere. The Bush failures to implement starting really with Katrina, the Rove model of focusing on base mobilization, and the House and Senate Republicans losing total touch with their own voters. All of those things came together to be a disaster, and uh, 06 and 08 will be looked back upon as a period where we went from the potential for a governing majority, which we had as late as the summer of 04, to throwing it all away, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. And Democrats had almost nothing to do with it. Rove rejects that analysis. I love how everybody gets it wrong. 2000 and 2004 were not base elections. Compassionate conservatism was about energizing the base and allowing the governor of Texas to go out and get people who would not normally vote Republican. And the campaign in 2004 was aimed at maximizing the strength among existing Republicans and then getting 16% of the black vote in Ohio, getting working class Democrats, getting 44% of the Latinos. All of these things were aimed at reaching outside the normal Republican base. And that's the route the Obama campaign followed, increasing turnout among Democrats while pulling over small but important bits of the Republican vote. Ironically, part of President Bush's political legacy may be the model of grassroots campaigning that carried him in 2004, one the Obama team went to school on and then took to a whole new level. In 2004, Rove held generate an army of volunteers, mostly drawn from the evangelical community, who campaigned neighbor to neighbor and expanded the electorate in ways that surprised and overwhelmed the Kerry campaign. I don't want to diminish Obama's very thoughtful and skillful and tactically brilliant campaign. They said, we're going to study what Bush did in the army of persuasion and duplicate it, and we're going to go out and try and get small but significant slices of what the other guy's coalition was in the past two elections. Although President Bush's party may be in retreat for now, Newt Gingrich says Mr. Bush wrought other political changes that will last for a very long time. He brought 
social conservatism much further into the center of power than it had been uh, in 70 years. He appointed uh, two very solid conservative Supreme Court justices who will shape policy for a generation. There's some things George W. Bush can go home and feel pretty proud about. In the long run, says Dan Schnur, Mr. Bush's political legacy will depend on how successful President-elect Obama will be in cementing his own majority. I guess the question that can't be answered for another four years is whether Barack Obama's victory this past November was an aberration or a forerunner of things to come. If he does cement this type of support these various voter groups become Democrats for election cycles for many years to come. And that's something that obviously looks very poorly toward the Bush political legacy. But if in four years voters turn back to the GOP, George Bush's political legacy may look very different indeed. some questions for you about the week's news. Tom, we know that Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary nominee, had a little trouble paying his taxes, but we know because of his sworn testimony that his problems were not caused by his what? Um, uh, accounting skills? Not uh, his skills, not his accounting skills. His he, said, he said, for example, that it wasn't that he clicked the little button that said, Click here if you want to cheat the IRS. Oh, his TurboTax His TurboTax, yes. He has sworn that it wasn't the fault of his TurboTax. We know that Mr. Geithner did not pay some of his self-important taxes. I'm sorry. Self-important taxes. If, if there was a yeah. self-important yeah. tax, yeah. I would be bankrupt. You and the whole city of Washington, D.C. I know. Sorry about that. <laughs> self-employment taxes. He, he didn't pay the self-employment taxes. We know that he feels... It was a terrible mistake. We know this because by the Washington Post's count, he used the word mistake 41 times in his testimony, the word error 11 times, and the words, would you shut up about it now, you old gas bags, 14 times. <laughs> I like, you know, this president is on the ball. He is. I mean, he has got us a treasury secretary that already knows how to ream the taxpayer. Yeah, there you go. Uh, uh, warmed up and ready to go. Yeah, he knows his way around the tax code. Yep. Anyway, the Republican senators uh, grilled him about it. They asked him to name the tax software he used. He said it was TurboTax, but his mistakes were not the fault of the little accountants who live in the computer. Now, it was a little surprising, though, to find out that the Treasury Secretary uses commercial software to do his taxes. Well, I was thinking that, that, I mean, I'm nothing, and I don't do my own taxes. And you would think that somebody in position to be Treasury Secretary would, like, have... Well, it's, it's, it's all part of the whole belt-tightening yeah. thing, using software. For example, uh, Defense Secretary Robert Gates makes most of his strategy decisions using World of Warcraft. <laughs> I, I thought he was playing Battleship. No, 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 no. More complex than that. Yeah. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton has planned her agenda for the first term, playing Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this is going to be a little scary. The new transportation secretary, Ray LaHood, big fan of Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I understand Justice Roberts is going to start taking the grammatical suggestions that word gives him. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Hi, it looks like you're trying to administer the oath of office. Can I help? <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. So uh, as promised, I, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about my experience at the inauguration. Uh, now, if you went to the inauguration or if you know someone who did, then you're probably sick to death of hearing people tell their personal stories about it. Uh, but for those of you who haven't, uh, this is for you. So, uh, so as I mentioned uh, a while back, I actually volunteered for the inauguration I went and had a you know one day little training, so they kind of uh, give you an idea of what it's going to be like. Um, they gave me this spiffy red hat that uh, that would identify me as someone who knows what they're talking about, and uh, and then basically you show up on inauguration day ungodly early and do whatever your team captain tells you to do. So my day started. Um, you know, woke up before 4 a.m., got to the uh, metro train to get into the middle of the city, um, you know, right around 4.15 or so, and it was, it was rush hour. I mean, standing room only, and, uh, and, you know, every single person on the train just excited and pumped up about going to the inauguration. So, uh, you know, it was an interesting thing to see the trains uh, that busy that early. I mean, the trains usually aren't even open at that hour, but uh, it, was, uh, it was a special day. So, so it took, you know, about, uh, about an hour to get, to get somewhere that, that would have normally taken 30 minutes, probably. And, you know, the, the train ride was fine. Getting out of the station was madness you know everyone has to go through the little uh, ticket readers and that and and the system just could not handle the the number of people so so the train ride was fine but i probably spent uh, you know at least 15 minutes standing in line just to get out of the station once i was there so we met up it's still dark throngs of people are already descending on the national mall at, uh, you know, this is about 5.15 now. And basically from 5.30, 5.45 until 11 a.m., my, you know, myself and my team of volunteers were all stationed at the intersection uh, south of the mall, closest to the regular non-ticketed people's entrance to the mall that was closest to the capital. So if you can imagine, you know, every few blocks as you move away from the capital, there was a big security checkpoint to get onto the mall. And so ticketed people, you know, the the special people who had a ticket for one reason or another could go up to, you know, I think it was 4th Street. And you know, so that's just a, a couple of blocks away from the capital. 
and uh, and then Seventh Street, obviously just a few blocks down, was the first checkpoint, and then you know Twelfth, there was another one, and so on and so on and so on, all the way back, all the way down the mall, there were these checkpoints, and so our job was to just uh, stand and direct people for hour after hour after hour, and you know answer questions when we could. Uh, I took pictures of a couple of people because they, uh, you know, they asked me to take their picture, and um, you know, and it was it was a pretty good time. Uh, the idea that my little red hat uh, indicated me as someone who really knew what they were talking about was a little bit of a joke, you know, because every, uh, you know, as things change on the ground, uh, communication was not uh, was not in full force. So all the volunteers basically were doing the best they could to answer people's questions but I had lots and lots of people uh, come up to me and say you know they'd, they'd have a question and then when I'd answer they'd say oh okay that's really interesting so you're now the uh, the fifth different answer I've had for that same question so um, you know it was it was obviously madness and chaos but from what I understand it went off you know absolutely amazingly just zero arrests I, I heard of one injury and um, and for that many people to be in, in one place at one time and and for nothing to go wrong was pretty incredible so the uh, the big event kicked off at about 11:15 so around 11 o'clock I started making my way towards the 7th Street checkpoint to get myself onto the mall but on my way I found out that the mall was so full that they had closed every checkpoint all the way down to 23rd Street. And so I picked up my pace a little bit, imagining that I had to, you know, walk it, you know, an extra 15 blocks or whatever. And as it as it turned out, you know, there were buildings all along the mall and thank God for me, the security was a little lax around uh, around the Hirschhorn Museum. It just so happens and so I was able to sneak by and, and ended up being, you know, amazingly close to the, well, uh, <laughs> let's say relatively amazingly close so that I could, uh, I could see the Capitol with, with my bare eyes and actually could make out the fact that it was the Capitol. So, so that was exciting. And then there were the jumbotrons and the big speaker system so we could hear what was going on. So I could see, I could hear, uh, I got myself to a pretty reasonable place in the crowd, and, and basically, once you get yourself into the crowd, you're not going anywhere. So I was uh, in the middle of a big group of people, and, and that's exactly where I stayed until uh, until people started making their way out. And, uh, and you know, for, for, it was from that point that I was able to take a, a few pictures just with my phone, and, and, and you know, actually, they turned out pretty well and, and one turned out so well I, I posted it on the website for uh, for everyone to check out so uh, bestofleft.com check out that picture um, I don't want to make a big deal out of it but I'm, I, was, I was actually pretty proud of it I sent it around to a bunch of friends and someone convinced me to um, you know a friend of mine convinced me to actually turn it into a, a photo contest for um, you know it was, it's an Obama centric photo contest so pictures all from all throughout the campaign and the election and and uh, the inauguration so so you can check out all the details on that on the website so from there once the swearing-in was over 
Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't bother sticking around for the parade, and uh, and I'm very glad that I didn't. It could have been a lot worse for me. I, you know, I, I thought it was bad, but I found out later that other people had it much, much worse getting back into the metro. You know, it, it only took me 30 minutes of standing in a crowd, waiting, waiting, waiting to get down the escalator into the metro system. Um, but I, I heard stories of other people waiting an hour or more, walking from one stop to the next to the next, trying to find a way to get in and, and just not having any luck and uh, ended up, you know, walking for hours and miles and then taking a, a bus or a taxi or something to get out of there. So, you know, I, I thought I was in a big crowded place, but apparently I got out early enough that it really wasn't so bad for me. So that's about it for the story from the inauguration. You know, it uh, it was an amazing experience. I have absolutely zero regrets about being there or braving the cold. I'm sure you've heard the stories of how cold it was. And, you know, it, yeah, it was. I just was prepared. I had a couple of jackets, a few pairs of pants on, um, hand warmers in my gloves, shoes, and hat. And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, it wasn't so bad for me. So I certainly understand why people uh, were miserable out there in the cold but uh, but I, I did okay so while you're on the website to check out that uh, picture I was talking about um, it, it's panoramic by the way so which is part of why it's so nice while you're on the website bestofleft.com go ahead and hit the podcast alley link and vote for the show as I was mentioning before we're doing a little experiment this month to see if we can get ourselves in the top 10 and uh, and if so if that really boosts our uh, traffic or listenership or anything like that and uh, and we had a pretty decent success in uh, in the first week here we uh, we hung out at number six for uh, for a couple of days and have since dropped down but obviously we're capable of uh, of maintaining that position if we put our minds to it uh, thanks to everyone who voted uh, got you know really healthy number of votes in uh, in those first few days so let's keep that going and then, of course, uh, iTunes is going well as, as well. Um, so while you're on the website, take, you know, just one and a half more minutes and leave us a five-star review in iTunes. Um, we're, we're actually, you know, again, we're definitely seeing progress being made. Uh, those reviews are coming in, and it is having an impact on our standing in, uh, in the iTunes Music Store. So much appreciated for all that, and that's going to be it for today. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Just a fall.